morning. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Jim Gentili. I'm here with my friend. I'm John Heinz. Well, John, I was about to introduce you, but wow. just leave oh, right in. I was I about to say in. that I'm here with my friends and co-hosts, John Heinz, the person who obviously has a premature problem today. I brought some candy back from the U.S. when I came back after the holidays, and I'm all jacked up on sugar because it's 9 p.m. on a Sunday night It's here. some sort of premature thing that you've got going here today. And, of course, my friend and co-host, and as we call her, no prep Peg, Peg Bennett. Good morning, everybody. And before I introduce today's topic and uh, today's special guest, I want to say, apropos of nothing— that I recently finished reading a book called World Without Mind by Frank Four, who is former editor of The New Republic, and I wanted to recommend that to everyone. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting book where he talks about what he perceives to be the dangers of the big tech companies, and uh, I don't think you have to agree with everything he says to appreciate the quality of his argument. And, of course... It goes without saying that not only is it a good book and uh, well-written and so forth, but that Frank Four was a debater at the Georgetown Day School who I had the privilege of pretending to coach for a few years. So I'm very uh, proud of that of him, and of course, uh, uh, it's a good book. I recommend it to all of our 12 listeners. One of the podcasts that I'm listening to these days is, uh, is about that. It's pretty good. I'm, I'll be curious to read it. You would find the book especially interesting, John. I did think of you when I was reading it. Does it name names like Facebook and? Yeah, he so he talked about Google, Facebook, Amazon, all those. Guys. Okay, all the big guys. All big tech, really. He's talking about the concentration of power in big tech. Is really what the theme of the book is. Cool. And how dangerous he perceives that to be. Uh, today, our very special guest is. Banker, philosopher, observer of the contemporary scene, Nate Tribble, who's joining us from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hi, Nate. How's it going, guys? I have to ask, how many episodes does Peg need to be in before she gets called out in the title? Just throwing that uh, out there. Well, we talked about changing the title. Yes, Nate. I, I said I would quit the podcast if they changed the title. I like it. Okay. We originally were going to call it Two Honkies in Search of an Argument. Nate, but, uh, but <laughs> I'm just a guest host. I'm temporary. Yes. Peg has the illusion that she's still just yeah. a guest host. <laughs> so Nate is, uh, uh, is, of course, like so many of our guests, and we're proud to say a former high school debater. Hey, 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 Nate, give us a shout out. To your old high school debate team. Uh, so I was a debater for, for Head Royce, Go Jayhawks, um, and the University of Redlands. Right. So, and a college debater, too. I should have said that. Yep. And of course, uh, Head Royce is in, isn't Head Royce just like right on the border between Berkeley and Oakland, or am I making that up? No, it's in, o it's in Oakland. It's in Oakland. Exactly. But they like to think they're in Berkeley because they're too cool to be in Oakland. Yeah, maybe. So let me tell you about today's topic, which is – which, and I think the best way to introduce it is to explain how it came to be, which is that I listen to a podcast regularly called You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth. It is a podcast – by the way, John, she talks for the whole hour of each podcast, except occasionally she has an actor portray – do a voice portrayal of one of the people she's talking about, but it's basically her talking for an hour. A monologue. Yes, essentially. And uh, the podcast, which I enjoy very much, is about uh, old Hollywood and old films and the stars of those films and the makers of those films and so forth. And uh, she was doing a podcast. Uh, I think it was about Bing Crosby, and she was talking about the 1942 film Holiday Inn, which is a story with uh, Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire play uh, partners, show business partners, uh, what we would nowadays call frenemies, which is to say they have a, a uh, somewhat complex relationship. And Bing Crosby's character 
wants to get out of show business and retire and, and open a farm. In Connecticut. It's a, in, uh, I can't remember if it's Connecticut or Vermont. It's Connecticut. Actually. I'm not sure. Um, but he finds that farming doesn't really, uh, is too strenuous. So he comes up with another idea, which is to take the farm and turn it into an inn that is only open on holidays and, uh, and they would put on shows for people and for the public on those holidays. And it's an Irving Berlin musical, so it's all music by Irving Berlin. So you have Easter Parade. And, of course, the thing that it's probably most famous for is that it was for that movie that the song White Christmas was written and first premiered. With the pipe. Uh, so all that being said, and people remember the movie Holiday Inn for a lot of reasons, one of the things that they don't remember is uh, – is a part of the movie that Karina Longworth uh, mentioned in her generally praiseworthy discussion of Holiday And She said, I have to tell you about this before, if you've never seen the movie. I have to warn you, I think is what she said. And that is Trigger warning. for Lincoln's birthday, in celebration of Lincoln's birthday, they do a blackface number. And this led me to... to uh, think about, and it's not a topic that has never been discussed before, certainly, but it's certainly a topic that I think is worth uh, discussing again, which is we have a number of films, we have books that come from a different era when there were different levels of acceptability for portrayals of minorities, people of color, people of certain sexual orientation portrayals of women, for that matter. And what do we do about these artistic relics from those areas? And particularly, what do we do about the pieces of those relics that uh, have portrayals that would nowadays be considered offensive? When we were discussing doing the topic, John uh, brought up the character called Black Pete, which is uh, a Dutch Reference creation, right, John? Yep, from Santa yeah, Cl- a, uh, Santa you know, Claus's a partner. Of folklore in Dutch, and uh, of which David Sedaris has written about, and of which I think there's a YouTube video of David Sedaris reading some of his writing on the subject, which is again yeah, not a, and not a very good YouTube video, actually. Strangely, but actually, it's a great thing to read. Strangely, less pleasant to watch, but still good. I'd also object to the to the term partner. It's true. He's not really a partner. That's true. So. So that's what we wanted to talk about today. We have these, the not necessarily entirely just about those two things, but but maybe using that as a point of departure to talk about the general subject of how we treat these offensive pieces of art and literature and folklore that that still are with us today. And so that was part. That was the sort of inspiration for today's topic. So I wanted to begin the the conversation and and just to make sure. I don't think there's no there's none of us I think that would want to defend or or say that this was not offensive, right? That well, specifically like the Holiday Inn thing or Black Pete for that matter. Would any of us feel that it's not offensive? No, it's totally offensive in all in every. Nate, you start. I'm not gonna defend Black Pete <laughs> or uh, or the no, black think, blackface, right? Or the minstrel or the minstrel show. Yeah, no, I'm 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 good. I'll pass okay. on defending. And I don't things. think any of us here would say want to take the position that they're defensible. But maybe I just want to make sure we're all we're all on the same page at least. Uh, I'll chime in for Peggy because I'm sure she's on board. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, Thanks, Peg. You, you can speak for me on this okay. matter, yes. Peggy is still trying to uh, enter the sweepstakes for the Viking cruise. And all those Viking cruises go to places where there are no people of color. Is that correct, Peg? And none on the cruise. None on the cruise, of course. Except perhaps, well, whatever. We'll leave that uh, aside. Yeah, there are some of us on there. <laughs> yes. Right. But perhaps not paying guests. So, Nate, have you seen Holiday Inn? I, I did, and I will have to admit that I did not rewatch Holiday Inn um, for this podcast, only because it's tough to get me to rewatch a minstrel show. Okay, but I mean, okay, but the rest of the movie 
doesn't have a lot of offensive content in it, I don't think. So what do we do about a movie like that? I mean, should it be should it be taken out of the canon? Should we not watch it at all? Should we cut those scenes out or should we keep them in because that I mean, it's real. That is what people thought and did at one point in time. I am not a fan of of cutting the scenes out, and I think that's actually how a lot of people have gotten away with watching this movie without seeing the minstrel show. I know for a time, ah, I didn't know some that. of the networks that it aired on had had actually cut that scene. Yeah, I think that's true. I think often when it's aired on television, that is the case. Which is the only way a movie like that could survive uh, with that scene in it. I, I think it's you have to do a lot of emotional and mental gymnastics to get to a point where you're comfortable um, saying, you know, the movie is good other than that that one scene. It, it reminds me somewhat of, of Breakfast at Tiffany's where the movie is good except for that one character or even, and I know this was an example used on an earlier podcast, 16 Candles is increasingly hard to watch. It's a great movie except for that one one character. In terms of the question of what we do, I just try not to watch, frankly. It, it begs, I think, a, a more interesting question of, of what do you do with them at their outset? Namely, what do we do with Gods of Egypt starring Gerard Butler? Or movies that maybe haven't made it into the canon of cultural relevancy. So you're talking about like contemporary films where uh where where you have an issue sometimes of white actors un hard to believe this still exists, but it does where white actors are playing essentially non white roles. Matt Damon, Great Wall. Right. As I mentioned, I've I've enjoyed catching up on some of the later episodes of the podcast and I think it was in theater versus film or Jim, you make this point that film doesn't allow for for folks to have shifting racial identities because you know there's a certain amount of realism. I think it's more complicated because of the the film has at least the allure that it's supposed to be very realistic, whereas theater, you know, has the stage contrivance. Right, and I laughed at that because on, only a white guy would, would take that stance in the world of The Last Samurai, starring Brad Pitt. Right. It's a fair point. It's a fair point you make, although and again, as I said, I find it astounding that still happens today. I guess in my mind, I just find the 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 circumstances under which that still happens today to be just beyond uh, the pale of uh, of discussion. So I sort of put them out of my mind. But uh but yeah, it still happens. And it's a global market now, so it's far bigger than where it was. But the fact that it's a global market just to me there's clearly there's, you know, there's tons of actors, there's tons of African American actors, there's tons of African actors for that matter. There's uh tons of actors of all different countries of Asia. It's a little bit even crazier now, I think. Uh, just as a practical matter to try to defend the idea that you have to cast this white person in this. Well, especially when they're making films and it's pretty clear they're making them with the intention of selling them abroad more. They know in Hollywood, more money is going to be made from the film played abroad than in the U S and even then they continue to put in white American, you know, pop pop American actors in roles when, the, the audience isn't going to even be tied to that category. It's, it, seems even, it seems even more ludicrous in some way in that they're still doing it. Having said that, I think, it's inex- I think it's pretty much inexcusable that it happens today. The question is, do we judge? I mean, and I, we're talking I mean, about I, the history. Again, I'm not trying to defend anything. Yeah, we're does. talking about the history stuff, Jim, though. I think that's that, this is my, so my question, and I guess I'd ask Nathan this as a starter, is so, Nathan, where are you on the taking down of the Confederate statues? I, I take them down. The reason I think movies may be slightly different or, or pieces of art is, is just that there isn't a central location. You know, if there was a 
a white Christmas statue or a Bing Crosby statue, you know, I suspect there's probably a good case for taking that down. I think that that's in that in the context. Different art. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it's it's hard to, you know, uh, that's a that's an interesting sort of twist in terms of what you do with it. I remember the first time that I went to the University of California at Berkeley and I walked around campus, whatever year that was, and I think it might have been in a debate tournament, but I can't remember for sure. I remember walking around campus and I actually remember the dominant memory for me of walking around that campus was uh, the art that I saw. There was there were statues and I seem to recall statues in like courtyards and they were provocative in a way I had never seen on a university campus before. Not that I'd been to that many, but I'd been to a few and I noticed it at Berkeley. I saw like, I remember seeing what I can only describe as a, you know, fat black woman in one naked. And I was like, wow. And I noticed it. And I remember seeing a few others and thinking, there's art here that's provocative. And I, of course, attributed that in my, at the time to thinking, oh, it's because it's a public university. It's a state university. They can, they, you know, they can do this. They're not beholden to kind of much more conservative alumni associations or whatever who would donate the money to be doing something more generic and corporate. But it does seem to me that it's all the same category, right? It's all the same stuff. The, probably the statue of the guys, the Confederate guys in the South were made by artists and they would perceive what they did as art as well. We're not in France where, you know, we're talking about taking it off the money too, but you know, in France, the money has philosophers and artists and poets on it, not politicians. Um, so I think the, 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 you know, really, the, it, it really, I think there's a lot. It opens up a huge uh, discussion about you know when you're when you're fixing things, when you start fixing things, which I kind of am not. I'm not sure where I stand on it, but I think I might be a little more pro fixing than not now. You know, I don't know that I want to have a some kind of a cultural revolution, but the, I, I maybe want to fix something, but it, it does raise a lot of really problematic, um, you know, uh, big questions. I want to go also to say that since Nate has raised the name Bing Crosby, that sort of one of the ironies of, and, and one of the reasons why I think this Holiday Inn discussion is particularly interesting is because Bing Crosby was actually and again, I'm not defending the blackface number in Holiday Inn, but Bing Crosby was actually very liberal on, uh, or considered very liberal on race matters. He was a very big uh, proponent of black jazz musicians. He was a friend of a number of them, particularly Louis Armstrong, and he was considered very liberal on race issues at the time. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I never knew Bing Crosby, the late Bing Crosby. I'm sure that in his head was not racist. <laughs> uh, that number was, you know, a good thing. In other words, it was, you know, it was about Abraham Lincoln and was talking yes. about how what yes. a great thing Lincoln did in freeing the slaves and how, uh, you know, they were there were it's intercut with scenes because the U.S. had just entered World War Two and comparing the freedom of the slaves with the the U.S. fight against another form, another racist thing, Nazism. So, you know, again, without defending it, part of the irony is and and I guess part of it is that you know from our perspective it's it's easier to see or at least it's easier to perceive for someone from my background obviously not a person of color it's easy to see why that's offensive now i guess 75 years ago i'm not sure if i would have been that uh maybe to use a word that's overused these days i would have been that woke to see what how problematic it was so I don't know. I mean, I think that that's again, I'm not I think it's I, I, I don't defend it, but I guess I'm trying to contextualize it. Maybe that's a form of defending it. I don't know. So so the question then, I think, is, is what do you do with it? Yeah. F for me, if you're if you're TBS, you don't play it. And I, I certainly don't watch it. I actually thought it was comical when we were discussing it. Prior to the show, it's like, ah, oh, you can order it for a few bucks on YouTube. I don't think so. <laughs> you're not going to order it. You're not going to. No. You're unwilling. And that's fine, obviously. Yeah. 
it's possible to separate how I feel about the context that this was made, you know, 75 years ago from the how that how it would be perceived today or what what the intention is in 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 making something unintentionally racist but i I don't know what that how that impacts why someone should still watch a movie like that in a slightly different context again more more contemporary there's a a pretty good documentary out uh, and i know i'm going to get the name wrong but something along the lines of um you know what about apu and it was centered on the the Simpsons character Apu and and how racist this this character is even in the context of a cartoon, and I struggle now to watch to watch Simpsons episodes. So sort of circling back to this idea of what do we do with the, with these older older artifacts? Part of me says we just let them die. Do you watch the Simpsons? I did, but now I. I I haven't in a while, and and watching this movie has, has gave prompted me to reflect a lot on on how 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 problematic some of their characterizations are, and I think that's part of what, what we do. Nate, do you think that? And again, I guess I'm asking this is a sort of a on a philosophical level. Do do you think that? I understand you don't choose to watch them do you think it's wrong would you say quote it's wrong for other people to watch those yeah if you don't get a sense of being sick when when you watch something like that like i i, I don't understand the folks who who can still watch breakfast at tiffany's you know it's just there's something so uh problematic that it overshadows for me the the value and even the nostalgia of having seen it the first time. And that's someone who, who saw breakfast at Tiffany's for the first time. And, and I, and I, and I think I remember not being a little off, but there was nothing, you know, directly problematic. And the same thing with 16 candles. It was, it was all laughs the first time around, but the more you watch it, if, if, if you've been exposed to even somewhat uh, of a decent approach toward, towards viewing these things, I, I just don't know how you reconcile that. So do you think there's any value in having people watch those things now, like kids, like 16-year-old, 17-year-old people who have not hopefully grown up with that in the, in films so they can see what, I mean, when Jim was talking about it's part of history and they should feel uncomfortable when they see it and they should see how people have been represented or treated in films. Yeah, I think that's a I, that's a great question because I this is something that I struggle with. It, particularly, I think the the only recent example I can think of is um, Gods of Egypt, which was you know this modern action sort of retelling. I I can't even say what it was because I didn't see it. How do you teach people whether or not there is a movie that's racist? How do you teach people about identifying sort of more subtle forms or, or even overt forms of racism in, in art. Yeah. You, you have to be able to see it. Yeah. I, I definitely love to engage with folks, especially after they've seen a movie like white Christmas or excuse me, holiday Inn. holiday Inn. as far as we know, white Christmas, I don't remember having any offensive racial content. But that was sort of a the later movie. <laughs> and I don't remember Breakfast at Tiffany's all that well, if in fact I saw it, but and I, and I may not have. But I definitely will say that Holiday Inn is, for me, overwhelmingly, I if but for the fact that they are so con- clearly trying to do something that's positive about race and doing and fa- and falling on their face so horribly <laughs> but for the fact that that's there in other words if they were doing blackface in any other minstrel thing in any other kind of situation i'd be like th- just ba- end it but somehow and i guess i'm wondering this about that about apu too cuz i haven't seen i haven't, i mean i obviously noticed it and i obviously always thought it was racist but somehow i presumed it was it was trying to be ironic about racism and highlight through satire 
um, something that's racist. But I, I, you know, I haven't done the analysis, and I can, and I can, and it certainly does. And and the the show that far more than the Simpsons, the show that comes up to me that's patently racist or and has a lot more just offensive stuff that is kind of inexcusable and doesn't serve a satirical purpose is South Park um, and its progeny, which often to me are gags for gag's sake, as opposed to Simpsons, which clearly, I mean, maybe not in everything they did, but clearly overall the show was satirical. So, I mean, th- and they were trying to, and they were, and it was satirical, you know, going in kind of the, the, a, a more liberal direction politically. So it was, it was, I think there's a difference in, in the intent. I mean, I'm, I'm all for satire if it's going, especially if it highlights to a kind of an ignorant public, something that needs to be highlighted so that, you know, change can happen. That's even better for me. But um, it's, it, I agree. I don't know what I would do with, I do think that just what you're, what you're saying, Nathan, in general, just that people, if people have the option of not watching it, I mean, I'm not compelled to watch it. If anything, it's, um, I have a sister who's in love with Holiday Inn and Fred Astaire. And so pretty much every Christmas it's on our television in our house with my, my, my siblings. And so there's a, it's almost like it's, it's it kind of regaled. And I, I actually somehow just put that out of my mind every year until it comes on. If it does come on, if it's not on TBS or whatever. And then I of course go, Oh, Oh God! I can't believe I'm watching this. Um, I flinch for a minute and then I move on. So I'm not sure what to do with it either. I, I don't. I don't flinch as much. I, I'm. I'm. I'm curious whether or not you've tried to engage uh, about that scene, or whether or not you watch the version with the, the the minstrel show cut out. I thought it was restored. Oh no, I've seen it on occasion somewhere. I mean, I've definitely seen it before. Um, but I, I, I've definitely I've seen it before. But yeah, it's terror. It's horrifying. Um, does it, it? I mean, they weren't even being ironic, right? It, there was nothing even attempting to be satirical about it. They were just using it as a way to talk about something to do with that was related to race, right? So that's not satire. Well, it was, but, and, and again, I'm sure it's clear from the context that in their view, they are making a positive statement about you know reconciliation and a positive statement from their view, uh, what would have been considered a liberal statement of that, you know, racial equality. And, you know, that's part of being an American is racial equality and so forth and so on. They are clearly, you know, clueless and wrong. But I suspect that almost all of white America in 1942 probably suffered from the same thing. I mean, part of it is just the context of your experience, right? I mean, when I grew up, and this is not about race specifically, but I think it's analogous. When I grew up, I I didn't know any people that I knew were gay until I got to college. And, you know, I remember things we used to say and jokes we used to make, you know, offensive things about, uh, uh, you know, being gay or being, you know, queer or whatever. And, uh, and you know, uh, having said that, uh, the people I grew up around were considered sort of enlightened. You know, they didn't think homosexuals should be fired from their jobs. And they thought, you know, they were basically sort of, you know, at the time, what it would be considered liberal. Now, of course, I look back on that in somewhat of horror that, you know, that we said things that we said and we thought things that we thought because, you know, it was ignorance, really, more than anything else. And and I think that, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of racism, a lot of sexism, a lot of homophobia is ignorance. It's is what a lot of it is based upon. So, I mean, there is there is that that sort of thinking, I guess. I mean, it is interesting. I think I certainly, you know, if I were watching Holiday Inn with anybody that um, was a young person, or if I, if they were watching, and if they, I knew they were going to watch it, I don't, I, I don't go around showing this movie to young people or anything. <laughs> but if I were, I would certainly want to talk about, you know, why that was, you know. What make you know why people thought that was okay then, and what you know they were you know I think that it was a case of ignorance they they didn't 
really understand. Well, as far as young people, I was meaning more like 16 candles because I do know some of my friends with their 16-year-old daughters and 17-year-old daughters. They're watching that. I think I think if you're gonna if they're gonna watch that, I think you you need to have a discussion right about how problematic the depiction of well and, of and what I was gonna say is that some of their kids notice it. They say, "Oh wow, right. oh, we would never do well, that." That's you know, good, that's right? horrible. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad to hear that. Me too, and I think that it's kind of interesting for them to see how people have been portrayed. Maybe they don't know that, and that's good for the. I don't know. I think there's some education. I'd like to know that. how they how they peg the kids who are saying who are noticing it when it's being when it's when they're viewing it and comment on it. I'd love to know where they learned to comment on it. Now I'm I, now the answer is pretty easy, which is just culture. But I'm curious where in the culture, if we could parse it out, where they got that because I do think in schools, for example, I think it's it's. It's you know an ongoing issue in like English and literature departments where for as a perfect example, um, uh, Huck Finn as a novel has taken a nosedive in popularity, being taught in most schools primarily because of the depiction of Jim, and that's a fairly subtle. That's a much more subtle. Uh, criticism, it's it's still accurate, but a, but a much more subtle criticism than something you know like Sixteen Candles or or Holiday Inn. But it's but but it's you know their schools are definitely addressing this kind of head on. They're they're looking at it and trying to go, okay, how can we, um, you know, what do we want to teach? Because there's this massive cultural replication thing happening in the schools. But I think that it's happening even bigger than that. I think that it's happening just in the culture with, and maybe it's happening on YouTube and in social media and such. But I think that there are, the, the, the message is getting out somehow. And I think that that's, you know, so that's, that's heartening, I suppose. Well, and I think parents, I mean, in my particular family that I'm thinking of, it's their parents who Got it. discuss those kind of things with them and make sure they're aware. But I mean, there's no question we've made some strides in terms of consciousness over 75 years or 150 years i mean it's not we're certainly not at at nirvana here but uh but we've made some strides well, what about a book like huck finn Nate? because while holiday inn and 16 candles you know represent certain things i'm not sure anybody would say that they are great works of art but you can Make an argument for the adventures of Huckleberry Finn as a great work of art, albeit with this problematic portrayal of Jim. So you can't take, you can't eliminate these things. I mean, and and apparently, and if if that is true that they're sort of being eliminated from school, that's pretty sad in the context of of Huck Finn because it is an opportunity to to speak to these issues and to questionable representation. I think it also creates an opportunity for as long as folks are are safe to express why it's problematic. I think that that goes a long way in in terms of impacting the cultural significance of be it Twain or or really any other aspect. It's, it's, It's a tough question because in part, when I hear we've made strides, there's no doubt we've made strides, but there's still movies like The Great Wall at the top of the show. We we sort of already went through the fact that some of these same black face, yellow face representations are still cropping up in film is, I, I think, potentially evidence that there isn't enough scrutiny and we are allowed to just sort of watch these same problematic representations occur over and over again. And so I don't think banning anything ever works, but but there has to be a new approach towards how we how we problematize them. Well, I think that the other point I think to consider, especially I think in the context of a novel like Huck Finn, is that there is a real whatever the problems, and there are problems with how Jim is depicted in Huck Finn there's a real character there, and it, this is certainly one of the themes of the of the documentary, The Celluloid Closet, that talked about the depiction of gays in film, right, is that the choice between, on some level of the history of cinema, is between the offensive stereotypes and being excluded completely 
from the depiction at all. In other words, if you go back to the literature of the 19th century and the and the in a large part of the 20th century, and of course before that, you know, uh, a large part of that literature, peoples of color and and other uh, people outside uh, a very narrow channel are excluded completely mm-hmm. from that literature and, and excluded completely from a lot of the cinema of the early uh, part of And they're still excluded from a lot of the cinema. Let's be honest about that. So there is that sort of conundrum also, I think, when when talking about how to treat these works because – you can create the impression that there was no presence at all and 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 maybe just making sure people are aware that there was a presence however problematic however uh offensive yeah i agree with that that's why i like what nate said about you can't eliminate these things that's just, that's just part of history so i totally agree with that i have a question that maybe i shouldn't ask because i haven't seen these movies but does anybody is there a problem with these um Tyler Perry when he dresses up like a woman and he's playing a woman mama's house or something I've never seen him so I don't know what that is but I've always thought that was strange like why when we talk about how there's plenty of women who don't have equivalent acting jobs or so why do we need to have a man playing a woman and it's different than being like Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire where it is a man who's dressing up like a woman in the movie as part of the role. Does that in make sense? It's part of the plot of the film uh, in those cases. I've never seen uh, – I've seen a couple of Tyler Perry films, but no, not any of the Big Mama movies. Much. I've seen them. I've seen a bunch. I've seen a bunch of them. And, they're for, and for me, there, it, there is an ask. There is, uh, for me, it all comes down – at least it doesn't all come down to – it starts at satire. And to the extent that there is something ironic going on that's intended to kind of instruct – more than just grab, you know, kind of uh, easy laughs at the expense of the group being represented, that there's something um, satirical that's highlighted through the use of the thing. So in the case of Tyler Perry, I feel like sometimes, not always, and I've read, I've definitely read that some of those depictions are considered pretty sexist, but I, I typically, based on what I saw, I thought there was, there were, there, he plays in some of those, uh, in a lot of those, um, in a lot of those pieces, he plays to, uh, store th- themes about women, and it's and the, the reason the the themes that he plays to work are because he's in drag essentially. <laughs> and so I I have I mean I'm not a huge uh, I'm not I, I mean I definitely went through a point in my life when I was younger where I was a young gay guy and was like not did not like drag and the reason I didn't like it was. I kind of thought, A, it was sexist because it was men playing women. It wasn't, it was very rarely um, women dressed up as men, although, you know, there were, there are certainly some. Uh, but uh, the, the drag scene was primarily men playing women. And it was, you know, un, an unnecessary, kind of an unnecessary potential mocking going on. As I've gotten older, I've actually found that I'm kind of much more tolerant of it than I, than I used to be because. Uh, it's along the lines of what Jim was saying with, uh, I don't know if it was in the celluloid closet or somewhere else where, you know, somebody, s- several people who are kind of, I'd call baby boomer gays were looking back and, and decrying the loss of the sissy, um, which, which was a, a kind of a type um, that probably would have, that I would have looked at in horror when I was a younger gay guy and said, oh, this is this, this is the exact stereotype of gays that I don't want represented in, in art. And now there are quite a few guys who are like, oh, we got to, you know, don't we can't lose our sissies. It, so I, there, there might be some co-opting and appropriation of cultural, um, you know, cultural icons that, that different groups want to embrace. And that's great. But um, I think it also has the potential to be, um, you know, it could be, it can definitely be offensive. It's, it's interesting that drag comes up because the arts and leisure section of today's New York Times, the headline is a golden age for drag, question mark. I think the RuPaul uh, phenomenon right. has uh, in some ways mainstream drag a little bit more than it. Taylor Mack in New York has got just got a MacArthur Award Genius Grant, and you know, in the, the Taylor Mack's entire shtick is, um, you know, kind of over the top drag in these mass in these kind of this, these kind of wild historical drag um, 
Uh, Ted and I went to, we're in Brooklyn, and we saw a 24-hour drag production. It was literally straight 24 hours. Uh, it was a 240-year, every hour they did another decade of U.S. history of queer U.S. music or queer representations in in pop music throughout the U.S. And it was a 24-hour show. We literally slept or we, we tried to sleep a little bit during the production at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. Um, and Taylor Mack is, you know, is definitely getting a lot of attention in New York. You know, he's been a New York baby for a long time or a kind of the golden child in New York for a long time, but is now getting a lot of national attention too. Um, so I think there is something going on there. So I was going to say that there's actually an interesting sort of intersection here. Um, The controversy over the movie Stonewall whitewashing the character who Mm -hmm. sort of kicked off the riots, I believe. And then my my historical knowledge is not is not great on this subject, but I believe the original sort of impetus for the riots were sort of essentially a, a a brick being thrown by a, a black trans woman, whereas the movie depicts a sort of cis gay man who, you know, is, is very white and very clean cut. And I believe that's sort of the, the heart of the controversy over the the Stonewall film from a few years ago. I think that's right. I and think I think what that speaks to potentially is just that even though that I think is probably closer to the white face sort of black face racial obvious racial problem, uh, there are more subtle forms and and when when Jim you were mentioning the the lack of casting of, of folks of color, I'm always sort of tickled when there is an uproar over who plays what sort of fictional or superhero character. Um, one of your your previous guests mentioned uh, that Black Panther is coming uh, to to coming out in in February, which I can say I'm very excited about as well. Just to see a, a me too primarily black sort of comic action hero come to the big screen, and and I think what's funny is that the same folks who sort of decry the fact that this you know and mostly on Twitter and 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 the 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 dark recesses of the internet, uh, the same folks that 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 complain and 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 denounce having an all black cast in a in, in an action hero film about a comic book, sort of unflinchingly watch twenty hours of of Lord of the Rings where there's not a single black person cast in this in, you know complete fantasy world, and so I, you know I think I think there are easier cases. You know, and for me, Breakfast at Tiffany's was my 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 aha moment in in, in yellow face and, and black face. But I think that there are a lot more subtleties and, you know, Huck Finn and and some of these other instances all kind of problematize how how you feel about about what to do with these these artifacts. When we have a president of the United States who's a racist, <laughs> this takes on, I think, a different heightened and, and a sexist and a homophobe, too, probably. It takes on, all of this discussion takes on a different context, too, don't you think? Yeah, I, I was wondering whether or not you were going to get me in trouble talking about politics. Well, if you don't want to talk about politics, we don't have to. No, I think it's, I think that's, that's spot on. I think that what what's been exciting about the Trump presidency for me is that I think folks that assumed a lot of these issues were gone are are now seeing them up close and personal and, and you can't escape and hide from a lot of the more dangerous recesses of, 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 of whiteness. I want to, I want to follow up on that. First of all, just clarification. We should not take that to assume that means you're an endorsement of the Trump presidency, right? No, no, clearly not. (laughs) And I was going to say, and I guess this is another interesting question. And I think it tangentially relates to what we've been talking about is I was going to say by my lights. And again, you know, speaking from my experience, which is a very white experience, Trump is the first racist president since Woodrow Wilson. 
Now, I, I'll say this. I don't really know anything about Harding, Coolidge, or Hoover's racial views, so maybe they were racist. I don't know. By my lights, I wouldn't have said Roosevelt or any president since Roosevelt was a racist. I know other people may disagree about that, and I think there are some people who probably say they were all racist. Maybe that's true. I don't know. That's a, that's part of, I think, the question in terms of how do we judge things by contemporary standards uh, or do we, you know, how, you know, is there a curve on these things in terms of assessing uh, racism, sexism, homophobia? I don't know. I, how else can, can someone judge something? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that you can escape sort of where you are in terms of how you evaluate something. Now, I think, do you make exceptions for and do you sort of put caveats on on things that happened in the past but right i mean it's inescapable you know i there's, there's no way so you're saying it's inescapable that to some extent you're a prisoner of your time Is right that you, you know there's I, I wouldn't expect any any teenager today to watch 16 candles and not you know feel a little off about that movie in a way that even i when i first saw it you know just kind of accepted how old were you when you first saw it, Nate? Do you remember? Yeah, I was 10 or 11. I'm sure I was, I was pretty young. Okay, and so just how old are you now? Just if, if you're like... I'm, I'm 34. 34, okay. So we're talking about 25 years. I mean, and, and realistically, it was a five to 10 year period between when I had seen it for the first time and when I was very aware that that was, you know, problematic for... For a whole host of reasons. Yeah, I think that that it makes a difference. It certainly. I mean, there are certainly things when I was younger that, and I, when I say younger, I don't even necessarily mean when I was ten, but I, but younger than I am now. That now I look back on and think, wow, that was problematic. But at the time, it didn't. You know, it, it truly was not understanding, not knowing any better. I mean, I guess part of the issue is. There are people who, even though we know a lot more now, seem to persist in their willful ignorance or their, you know, maybe it's, maybe there's a more willful, more venomous form of racism, sexism, homophobia, whatnot. Well, there's no question that it's the, uh, that uh, as we've moved forward, there are metrics you can use at, to measure societally. And that's what I thought you were saying, Jim, about like how we've improved or not. But I, I kind of brought this up last time and I'll bring it up again, which is that people don't really live their lives based on, you know, kind of the averages of what's out there. Individuals live lives based on the things to which they're exposed and their lived experience informs kind of what, what, how they, how they see things. And if there's no question that, we can say we've progressed as a society or world in a significant ways, like increased lifespans. And we love to, you know, we can, we can name a lot of the metrics that we can go to, gay, the existence of gay marriage. I, I don't know that that always translates even kind of a little bit to the majority of people on Earth's lived experience on a daily basis. So I just think it's like, I think it's a challenge to say that things are better. I think that just proves Nate's point, which is that people are living at a certain time and place, and the context of their experience is what they know and what has happened to them. So in a different way, they lack the perspective of what things, you know, how much worse things could be. And in a way, you could say that the thing about Trump is uh, on a lot of these things, he shows us how much worse things could be. And how much worse things are on some level, right? In other words, whatever the flaws, whatever the disagreements you may have with this or that other president, there's a merit to them not being avowedly, openly, uh, disparagingly racist, disparagingly sexist, disparagingly homophobic. And it's worse when, when we have someone leading the country who is that way. I mean, I understand you're right. That's why it explains why people are constantly thinking that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, even when it demonstrably is not. 
because their context is they just know their own experience. Exactly. And it's very difficult for them to say, well, I'm better off than if I were going through the same thing 30 years ago. That's that's a very difficult position for people to place themselves in. It's very difficult, if not impossible, for people to be fully objective about their own It's difficult to even look back at my own experience of what it was like to be in you know a young gay man before the internet in a in a homophobic world without where there was you know where there was complete and utter silence about things like AIDS. It's difficult just for me in my own lived experience to kind of recall that and bring that to bear upon my thinking today. I mean, people have very short memories <laughs> and I think that that's why for me something like Holiday Inn and that's what I liked about when you brought this up Jim as an idea was to talk about is when you have these cultural artifacts that are that have enough I don't know they have enough juice that they just keep going even though they have these kind of dark undersides what you do with them I think is a really good question and and I do think the popularity of Hamilton is uh, you know actually affecting how students in school are what they're studying. I mean, they, and that actually happened earlier with, you know, with uh, people's history of the United States and, and uh, the, the, and the movement um, and quite frankly, globalism, which all has caused social studies departments and schools to dis- to make different decisions about how they're going to spend that precious time in school, uh, exposing students to different types of things. So the, those things are all, they're happening and it's moving, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that, and maybe this is good that we have a conversation about it, as opposed to having like an you know an absolute plan of action of what we're going to do and what we're going to execute on in the next you know six months and we're going to change because maybe that's exactly what makes uh, makes you know the 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 change and the maybe that's what uh, over the longer term brought about change. I don't know. I think that's a good point. I mean, you have to have some considerable amount of discussion, self-criticism, reflection, all that stuff to be able to move forward. I mean, I how many times do you rewatch things, which I don't do as much as I used to, but now you look at it like 16 Candles, which keeps coming up and say, whoa, we could never get away with that now, or we should never get away with that now. You know, you I noticed things a ton in movies that I used to watch, that I watched for the first time 25, 30 years ago that I think are crazy that that's in a movie. So I think, I don't know, I do think that's uh, progress. And I want to ask one more question that, you know, when you talk about, what's his name, Brad Pitt as the last samurai. It's Matt Damon. Um, and we Tom, all think Tom that's Cruise, ridiculous but, casting. Why? Yeah, what Tom do we... <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, Tom Cruise. Equally ridiculous. At least Tom Cruise has dark hair. But um, <laughs> do we talk about uh, Meryl Streep as a Jewish person? Polish woman. Why is that not criticized? Because there are no Jewish Polish actresses? Or is that because that's just part of the role and so it's a challenge? And it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it happens all the time. People have fake accents. I don't know if there's an answer and our producer is telling us we need to wrap up, but... There is so much more to talk. I feel like we need to have part two of this conversation if we can get if Nate would come back and do this, because I, I want to go off in the direction of talking. This makes me want to talk about the revival of the play The Boys in the Band, which me and the boys, me and my boys, are going to, and, and some of their loved ones, my boys are going to see uh, this spring on Broadway because of the, you know, of the whole question of how, what it meant in 1968 to have gays represented that way and why, uh, among a segment of the gay community, they reject that depiction as as harmful. And and there's so many other topics. And I was going to say, talking about how women are portrayed in film and literature is a whole discussion we could have. And the point you're raising about what are the acceptable lines to cross, I mean— in 1965, 50 years ago, which is in my lifetime, but not maybe anybody else's on this podcast, Lawrence Olivier, the greatest actor of his day, mm-hmm. made a film of Othello in blackface. Mm-hmm. It's inconceivable that there would be such a film made today to me. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. Mm-hmm. But it's inconceivable to me that there's an actor of stature that would agree to do that. But at the same token, we now have – we still have actors who do, you know, essentially the yellow face of a sort. Even – they may not yellow, but effectively they're doing that. You know, 
peg raises the it raises all kinds of interesting questions for sure absolutely and i and it raises and it even ties into for me things about being in china about the global market and about why hollywood would do this or any film industry when their bread's being buttered very clearly differently than it used to be i just think there's a there's a whole set of issues that we um haven't scratched the surface on including you know the the fundamental and i think you know one of the big ones is the fundamental building block of american democracy which is identity politics um and and how that plays out in terms of and how that translates to art so i think there's there's an enormous uh, there's an enormous uh you know area of uh, just issue there are a number of issues that we haven't scratched the surface on nate last last thought from you um no i i, I think these are some fascinating questions particularly the question of where where you draw the line and which which brings in sort of the corollary and potentially most dangerous component of of Trump, which is sort of are are we actually too sensitive about these things? And so I, you know, I yeah, I think there are, there's a lot that that still needs to be worked through. And in, and in drawing lines on the podcast, I'm really shitty at that. And Jim always kind of calls me out on it because he's big into like the lines and wants to keep the 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 interview very clearly structured so this has been one of the more fun ones because we've kind of gone off in some wild different directions well nate triple is nothing if not fun <laughs> i think erasing history never ends nate, well. i i think this has been a really fascinating discussion i've enjoyed it immensely i don't know if you have i hope you have and i'm very seriously hope you would consider coming back and joining us again because this has been a really stimulant for me it's been a very stimulating and and interesting discussion and uh and I don't even have my usual desire to spend time making fun of John like I normally do. I know this is like one of those weird episodes where we're act- where you're actually like in a zone gym and you're not just like plotting the next attack. I know, I was trying to spur it on behind well, the scenes but I think it that, didn't work. I I will say this. I think that this topic is I'm not saying you can't be humorous about this topic because I think properly you can be humorous about anything, but I do think that this is something that I take very seriously and I think is really important. And and it's very thought provoking in the sense that I don't that I think it is complex and very difficult to. On the one hand, it's easy to say certain things we look at are offensive, racist, and problematic, whatever word you want to use, but it's it's difficult to then sort of how how to how do we pigeonhole those things and how do we make differences between you know are we making differences are we making allowances for people that are racist but but are we saying on some level people's intentions were good whereas people that maybe we think their intentions are not so good uh, you know like i said we could just restart the conversation and go for another hour but I don't think our engineer will allow this to happen. I know she won't. But let me ask one last, one last, and uh, one last prov- thought, prov- provocative question, which is, which is, what if we were to do this drunk? Okay, that is really not. <laughs> now you want me to make fun of you again, John? Because that are you drinking right now, John? Is that why you're uh... <laughs> right? On behalf of uh, John, you probably do most of the podcast drunk because it's the night uh, where you are. It's the morning where we are, so it's a little bit more problematic for us. Nate Tribble is a distinguished member of the banking industry and never gets drunk as a result thereof. Oh, clear, clearly not. So listen, we're going to wrap up by saying thank you to all of you. Uh, Nate Tribble, I wanted to ask you one final question. This really is a final question. Tell us a person in public life right now that you admire. Is it is it cheating to say Barack Obama only it's because I just recently saw? Obama. I suspect other people might say the same thing. I I recently just saw he has a new interview with with Letterman. Um, Letterman. With Letterman. Right. And yeah. uh, I was not has some someone problematic that... stuff going too, but that's another. Story. Is Letterman still on the yes. air? No, no, he he's has got a, a new, new Netflix, Netflix show. Series now. It's a Netflix oh. show. But... He's been off the air for three or four years, John. But okay. But apparently, the mail doesn't get to China very quickly. I don't watch TV. I was just only saying that it 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 made me immediately nostalgic for for the Obama administration. Many of us feel that way as well. I think. 
All right. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Peggy. Thank, thank you, you, John. I had a, yeah, thank I you. I had a blast. Thank All right, you. I hope you did. I hope you will come back. Absolutely. Bye.